Hi and welcome to the podcast. I'm Sonia Thomas. I'm Sarah Jordan. And I'm Gavin Cooper. So this week, episode nine, we're joined by Gillian Harton, who's known at UCLH as Titch. And she's been in the critical care outreach team or PERT team for many years and is the lead for it. So we sat down with her and had quite a long conversation covering a lot of different elements of acutely deteriorating patients, hematology, and what we've made in this podcast, I guess, is an edit down of that conversation. I quite like that there's quite a lot of hopefully mutual respect between our two specialties, that working together, collaboratively sharing expertise helps train our nurses, but also make sure the patients get the care they need. We also talk about TEPs, which are actually treatment escalation plans, which we don't explain in the podcast. But the idea of a treatment escalation plan is so that there's a, a plan made for a patient that's potentially unwell that all the team can look at, particularly out of hours, and it helps our junior doctors and teams make decisions about whether a patient is for escalation or not for escalation. So we have a conversation about that and how useful they are. I thought it was quite interesting, like, do not resuscitate orders are actually not legally binding. So we actually had a bit of a discussion of certain circumstances where you might actually not follow a DNAR if something was acute and reversible, which I definitely learned from. So we discussed news, the early warning score. What's particularly good is I think we all came to the agreement that a lot of it is based on clinical judgment. But at the same time, being a newly qualified nurse, you have a score. And with that score, will empower the nurse then and give them the confidence to make that phone call to escalate. And I think it backs them up in a way that, you know, they didn't have before to say, well, this new score is high, so I'm calling you because that's what it's telling me to do. And it does give them the confidence to do that. But at the same time, as experienced nurses, we know not always to focus on that. So we discussed that and I think Titch was of that thinking as well. So I guess, Titch, one of the first things we kind of want to know is we call your team the PERT team. I guess it has other names in other hospitals. Some places call it like CCOT, don't they? But what is the kind of history of having a patient outreach team? Oh, gosh. Well, the history goes back, certainly in UCLH, to 2001 when we were called PERT with one R then, patient emergency response team. But oh, yeah. that was a critical care outreach equivalent. And critical care outreach came from a lot of work done by the Department of Health Uh, There was a publication, Comprehensive Critical Care. But there was a lot of investment into intensive care generally. Um, You may be too young to remember when we went into um, a Labour government in about 1997. Mm -hmm. Lots of people were very happy. Lots of money went into the health service. And they did review intensive care. Because at that time, people were having to be transferred hundreds of miles to get an intensive care bed. So they reviewed the the number of intensive care beds, but they also reviewed on how intensive care was delivered. And there were quite a few studies around at that time that were coming to light where patients did much worse in intensive care if they came from a ward rather than from theatres or the emergency department. There was a study done by Helen McGloin and Mervyn Singer at the old Middlesex Hospital. So we had local data as well as international data and national data that showed that. And Sheila Adam was our nurse consultant, a big name in critical care at the time, since replaced by John Welch, also a big name in critical care. But Sheila set up the PERT service. And I think she quite wanted a name that was a little bit different and didn't go with CCOT. So it did raise a number of smiles and it did feel a little bit silly at times saying you were a PERT nurse. But that's what we were. There were three of us and we did daytime only 12-hour shifts at the Middlesex site. So that was all about taking intensive care to where the patient was. 
So what you used to get, and you're probably a little bit young to remember this, is a patient would get sick on a ward and somebody would call the F1 or the JHO as they were then and they would work up through these layers of doctors uh, and eventually someone would say, oh, we need intensive care. And then eventually an intensive care registrar would come out. Now at the Middlesex, that intensive care registrar could also be in an ambulance doing retrievals from any number of miles away. So it could take a, a really long time for them to get there. Yeah, <laughs> even when they got there, it would take a really long time to get a bed, but no intensive care would be happening for that patient at the time that they, ne that they needed intensive care. So that's what we did. We went out and we took intensive care to the patients. And back then, the patients were actually really, really sick. I know you guys are used to sick patients, but a lot of the wards weren't, and the, and the patients were so sick compared to what we have now, and the, the stuff we were doing then was different. We were doing a lot more resuscitations on wards. We were putting in central lines in less than ideal conditions, not getting intensive care beds, and actually doing full-on intensive care on wards, which you don't really see now as it is at UCLH because we're, we're quicker, we've got more beds, and we get people into the intensive care before they need a higher level of organ support. But back then, you had to be almost dead before you got in. And we were managing these really, really sick patients on the wards. And is that because nurses at that time didn't really recognise the first starts of someone becoming unwell? So before like, the early warning score and system was introduced? Yeah, that's it. <sighs> or, or just even if they did, I guess what you're saying is that it's such so a long, long time. The right doctor actually can't. Even if they did identify early, it wouldn't. Yeah, and I think, you know, in, in, sp in specialist areas... And I think even more so in the Middlesex than maybe now in some of the wards, is that, that they were very specialist. They were small wards and they had their own consultants and everybody knew that specialty. So they knew when their patients were becoming unwell, but they didn't really have another path to follow other than through the the sort of historic up through the medical pathway. And, and it did take quite a wee while for it to embed that they knew they could call us and they wanted to call us because they didn't really want to because they didn't want to upset the doctors. So there was, there's just this whole change in culture and actually the whole landscape over the last 10, 20 years has changed massively in deteriorating patients and even how you guys manage them now. Your patients get sick and get very sick, but I think the specialist nursing care in the haematology wards here is, is quite amazing. You're, you're really doing level two yeah. care up there. Your nurses um, review the bloods, they understand blood gases, They've got PGDs for antibiotics, mm. for fluids. You manage an awful lot. And even back in the days when in the old building in Rosenheim, you, were, you still had sick patients, but there just wasn't that level now that you, that you can do so much more on a ward. And actually, your patients come to intensive care much earlier now. They don't wait until they need ventilating and, and uh, renal replacement. And that was always, they were always going to die when they got to that point coming to our intensive care and you don't have that same vibe of patient now I don't think what, I, what also do you think, I also think since the PGD so the patient group directive for TAS and Genf and each and sepsis has made mm. a massive difference on the wards to how sick we see patients that spike with an and fever I feel like less patients go to intensive care because of that or become mm. and do you think news has helped on your wards or were you already pretty on it I think we've got a sort of subsection of patients where the new score might not be that high mm. and the patient's quite sick. So we do kind of, we can't solely rely on news for all the escalation, but I do think it's really simplified. Yeah, the sort of the handover of deteriorating patients, people wreck, yeah. everyone knows but seven is bad. You know, it's, it's just, 
a really immediate sort of indicator, isn't it? Yeah, I think the main thing is it gives the nurses confidence because if they see a score and they see a policy that says you must ring this Mm -hmm. person and this person, they feel more confident to pick up the phone now um, because they've got that backing. But we still now, we always call the PERT team the gateway to ITU. That's how I describe, you know. Yeah, unless I feel like the nurses learn a lot from the PERT nurses that come and particularly our nurses on the wards really enjoy learning more about unwell patients and the information they can get from a, a very experienced partner seeing someone unwell, which is fantastic. Do you know, you've raised a few points there and there's so many thoughts in my head just now <laughs> about things I, I wanted to chat more about. But just to go back to that bit about um, us teaching you, because it, the, the importance, I think, of this sort of MDT approach to managing any patient because we're we're fairly generic on PERT. I mean, we got one of our team is very good on haematology, but the rest of us have sort of this this sort of veneer of of knowing about haematology, but know how to manage a sick patient in much more depth. Whereas you guys really know the haematology, so I always find any time I come up, I'm always learning from you guys, yeah. and and not least because not only do I not know it that well, I just can't remember it all. <laughs> So you probably find me coming up and asking you the same question about, you know, when do you expect the counts to come back up? What does it mean with that chemo? But I think for me, I think that's okay because you can only hold so much in your brain. So we hold the how to manage someone who's really sick and might need intensive care stuff. And you guys hold all the, we know lots about haematology and we've got all that in our brains. And then between us, I think it's a really good team and it feels really safe. Yeah. Yeah. Especially if you've got junior doctors who are on a night on their own. Yeah. You really rely on that whole team approach and the hospital at night. So there is no there is no single thing to fix a deteriorating patient. It will always come down to to teamwork and the different levels of experience and expertise. Which slightly takes me back to your point, Gavin, about news, because I really loved that there when there was like like inside me lots of mini fist bumps when you said about, you know, a low news doesn't mean you're not sick. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think news is great when it's high. Because then it's really clear that the patient is sick. <laughs> yeah. And uh, and if you're on my team, you hear me saying this all the time. But high news is a bit like you look at a building and the flames are coming out the roof, coming out the window. It's very clear that you need a fire brigade to, and, and this is an emergency situation. But when the news is low, and especially if it's, if it's less than four, people don't get so worried. And that dynamic change in the news score isn't always picked up. And I sort of liken it to you know if you were thinking about it as a fire you put the toaster on and you walk away from the toaster because it's fairly low risk but you know if something happens and that toast catches fire you've got a smoke alarm so that will alert you so I almost feel this might be slightly controversial (laughs) but this is how it feels on the ground sometimes in that with the low news score we've taken the batteries out of the smoke alarm you can convince yourself that everything's okay because the news is low and, and that alertness to something bad happening, like the urine output's gone off or you've got someone in acute pain that's very acute and is, is, is a sign of badness. And, and managing pain sometimes has become just all about loading patients with morphine or some sort of other opiate rather than think, oh, why, why's that pain got so bad? Yeah. I think it's all about the clinical judgment. You know and your nurses will know. In the same way that the news would give someone the confidence to say, I know my patients, there's something not quite right. And a news score, if it's high, will back you up to say, I don't think they're well, and this is what the news is. But when it's lower, 
giving maybe nurses the confidence to think if there's something not quite right, don't just rely on the news. Yeah. Because there might not be there might be something else going on with the patient. Yeah. I think there's other parts of recognising a deteriorating patient that is a little bit more tricky to monitor, and I think that's you know changes in neurological deterioration. Mm. Um, we're seeing more patients with CAR T cells that. There's a big risk of neurotoxicities. And GCS is really tricky, especially when it comes to best motor response. And people don't do that well, generally. And we probably should be on your patients maybe doing a bit more formal GCS. Because, of course, in the news, you've got the ACFPU and the C really confuses people about what is new confusion. And if Mm. they were confused yesterday, is it new if they still have it today, if they had it yesterday? And that's a three, isn't it? So that's a jump on your escalation. And should we... Should we be calling it confusion or should we be calling it delirium? Because all of the work that we've been doing is around delirium, yet the chart says new confusion. Yeah. So people are confused about new confusion and that often gets missed, that change. But I do think in haematology, the way you guys work, you spot these things much more quickly than other areas. You, you know your patients very well. You've got a good nurse to patient ratio, not just in terms of the numbers, but also your skill mix and the expertise that you've got on the wards. I mean, look at the expertise that's in here now. And you guys have those years and years of experience and you're still on wards directing the care and training other people to deliver that. So you guys do pick it up. But again, this is where news I I find is a bit tricky because a C is a three, Mm -hmm. but a V is a three, a P is a three and a U is a three. And they're all the same score. So, So you can get a bit stuck. Your news won't actually increase. So if you looked at our old news charts on how we designed them, we we changed them from the original Royal College of Physicians in that we added more boxes so that you could plot that trend as a graph and see the difference between a V, a P and a U because that's significantly different. So can I ask you guys a question then about the neurotoxicity with, you mentioned CAR-T and neurotoxicity. So what actually causes that and how is that different? Does it manifest itself in a different way from someone who's got... Absolutely not. So what's the difference with the CAR-T neurotoxicity? The way I've heard it explained is it's either CAR T cells are active in the CNS because that's where the disease is. It could be cytokine release in the CNS or it could be off target. So the CAR T cells are attacking something else in the CNS, but not the disease. So I suppose there's things there for us to think about on PERT and how Mm. we manage this because... I think we've totally got our heads around the cytokine release and this looks like sepsis but without an infective cause, but yeah. possibly there could still be infection. So we treat it fairly much the same in terms of supporting the organs and if they need to go to ITU for a bit of NORAD and organ support. What I am hearing myself now is that not clear on how we manage the neurotoxicity and what would our trigger be for us escalating to the intensive care unit and do we need to manage them like a patient with cerebral edema or raised in intracranial pressure? And I suppose even though we've got all this stuff like CAR T, there's still all the other stuff is still going with all your regular patients. Yeah, yes. yeah, we still. Have that. <laughs> yeah. So I'm of the other ones. But that... We do. I mean, like, but yeah, we do. We are expecting to see just ever more, I guess, immune therapies on the wards. You know, and even, mm. even as we're getting our head around CAR T cells, there's completely different types of immune therapy that are like phase one that are being brought out in the coming like weeks and months. What we're moving away from, from the standard treatment, which will still be used, is chemotherapies that are very, very toxic. And they're finding more ways of being able to treat these diseases that are more targeted with hopefully less side effects. And that's the that's the future of haematology. And that's where we're moving to. And we're in this really exciting time where there's lots of new therapies at the moment that we're learning about mm-hmm. and, and how to treat. 
<laughs> but, but you've all these other things that still come under haematology, don't you? Like TTP oh, and yeah. sickle cell. Uh-huh. So non-malignant haematology conditions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. absolutely. That still patients get incredibly unwell. But really excitingly with TTP, there's also lots of advances with that and patients are being treated and introduced another drug that's called Kapla, which is fantastic and it's shortening hospital stays. Patients are getting well very quickly Mm -hmm. and able to get home and then come in for regular treatments to outpatients to be treated, which is really exciting because there's huge advantages and advances that have happened over a very short period of time. I always have these always events for PERT. So always if a TTP patient comes in and they look in any way unwell or do anything weird like if they even look like if they have a mini seizure or a bit of chest pain or anything on the ECG your job as a part nurse is to get the ITU ready to take that patient to intensive care and also the, the heme kids on T12 North yeah. the adolescents so the other always is because you guys you manage an awful lot yourselves but and so your calls to us come after you've done lots of input and managed those patients and they're just not quite going on track like you would want them and that's especially true on on the the adolescents and because they compensate for so long Mm. and then they completely fall off their perch so again you've got the new score and things to guide but really my line there is if t12 north staff say that that kid needs to be an itu then that kid needs to be an ITU independent of what we think or what any score says. Yeah. So again, going back to the to the local knowledge and expertise of the nursing and the medical staff. But uh, that makes me feel a bit less scared about TTP now. But, but within haematology, you've got that nursing skill and expertise still at the bedside being nurses. And haematology is really holding on to keeping that expertise and advanced practice at the bedside. And I think PERT does that as well. Mm-hmm. We're still very much core nurses. And we do wash patients and we do engage with them and we do everything. And that's what I love about PER and I love about haematology is that we're doing all that advanced stuff still as nurses with our feet in the ward with patients and not sort of far removed. Your model is so good. And you just sort of think all the evidence-based, evidence-based, evidence-based always seems to apply except when it comes to the registered nurse ratio to patients. And then they seem to be able to ignore that. But you've managed to hold on to that in haematology and do your patients, pro- what's the, do them... That service, I guess. Yeah, yeah. You, yeah, you've given them the service that they deserve and they yeah. need, yeah. which you just think there's lots of specialties in all hospitals all over the place. Why, why can we not take this haematology model and plant it into all the wards everywhere mm-hmm. and understand the importance of this? Mm-hmm. But you do, and the other thing you guys are really good at is electrolyte. I mean, it probably, so, probably yeah, feels yeah. like not a big We're thing, so <laughs> but you guys, you know, you're looking at the results. I just thought over there when you said about the gent, you're topping up the potassium, the calcium, the magnesium. You know, you're you're totally on it. It does feel like you are a critical care. Well, you are a critical care unit. And what's really exciting for students, especially when you get third year students and they come to such an area that's like this and they leave the placement mm-hmm. knowing how to read a set of blood results for wherever they might go then after they know that they can do that, that's okay. And, you know, they don't have to be a doctor to do that to influence what they ask the doctor to prescribe and give and how they monitor. And I think that's why we have lots of students that, you know, will do a haematology placement and say, that's where I want to work. And that's what we want, really. And you do see that your students coming back and you also see how much work you put into your students when they're with you. There's lots of opportunity within the speciality to, you know, move up to a band six nurse and you know the cpf 
role and CNS role and AMP role. So there's, you know, if you if you start a career within the speciality, there's a lot, very long way that you can go really. And particularly at UCH, we support that within our department and with our matron um, because we think that's the most important thing. Yeah, well, you can you can see it when you go onto your wards. It shows. Oh, good. <laughs> oh, I'll be around at that. <laughs> do you want to do these questions? Yeah, do we have any other quick fire ones? So, uh, in anaphylaxis, yep. can the nurse administer the adrenaline without it being prescribed? Yes. You don't uh, wait for it to be prescribed? No. Right. So it is, or for and the doctor to be there? No. If you, anybody can give it if, if you've identified anaphylaxis. So any problem with airway, breathing or circulation that looks like it's been caused by something you've given or something they've been exposed to, I am adrenaline. We've just done a, a whole session on anaphylaxis with, with imaging department, with the head of allergy from the trust, um, Joanna Lakowska. So this is, I'm sort of repeating exactly what she said. Okay. Peritin, hydrocortisone, it's not a first line drug. So I am adrenaline is the only thing that's going to save your patient. It won't do them any harm. You will do harm by delaying giving the adrenaline. And in law, not just trust policy, but in law, you're covered to give I am adrenaline. Just remember it's half a milligram. Point five. Point five. Yeah and the small ampule or syringe. I am intramuscularly. Straight for that. Do no, not give it IV. Doctor, you just need you. Yes. no IV. And put out a cardiac arrest call. You were going to ask me about top tips. Top tips. You know, you've really taken on board doing venous gases yeah. and um, looking at the lactates. I would say when you do a venous gas, don't have air in the syringe. If you're taking it from a Hickman line or um, pick or a central line, because you can, to some extent, on those lines, interpret the venous saturations. They're not quite central venous saturations and they're not quite central line, but you can get a, an idea about perfusion and circulation and how to manage your fluids. But if you have air in the syringe, the, the, the blood doesn't know it's not in the lungs. So it's, it's there and it's got an air blood interface and there's oxygen in the air. So it will do a little bit of gas exchange in the syringe. So always make sure the air is out of it because that that is important and if we're following trends you can follow the trend on the on the venous saturations on that top tip so i love tips but i think there can be some limitations with tips so clearly there are limitations that's what they're writing about and making decisions about but i think it's good for people to have those thoughts early about what's appropriate and what's not the good thing about them is it you have a plan for teams that are out of ours especially yeah. And maybe you get a conversation between a haematology consultant and an ITU consultant earlier rather than waiting for the tipping point. So knowing what the plan is. But again, the downside slightly is that, that they're not always in context. You're talking about something in the future usually that might happen and might things change. And what if someone suddenly, I mean, this is really random, but you do hear these stories whether they're apocryphal or not, but like somebody's not for recess and then they choke on a peanut or something and nobody tries to yeah. stop the choking i never even thought about it in that you sense. know so so it's about people's mindsets yeah and so because true. they're written mm. down and they're very black and white in a way what do you do <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> well you'd have to treat them you wouldn't like you'd have but you'd intervene wouldn't you yeah and really they're and, and a dna cpr yeah, is not got to the point they went to spiritually <laughs> arrest and, and you have to perform cpr i know isn't well, that challenging you you'd have to do it so the DNA CPR well, call the ethics committee <laughs> first. <laughs> first. Yeah. None of it's legally binding. The, the the form itself is just a form that records the conversation and decision made at that time. 
But the DNFR. The DNA CPR, yeah. It's not legally binding. binding. No. So it's a medical decision that just, the form just records the medical decision at that time. So so people can override it either way. And I think if someone did choke on a peanut or had anaphylaxis because they ate a peanut, you would treat them and you would do CPR because it's something completely atrogenic. It's not like they've got advancing cancer and now they've got sepsis and their kidneys have failed. Yeah. The lungs, you know, you're on 60% on the ward, the liver's going off a bit, their GCS is dropping, and you, you take their heart stops. Well, the heart stopped because everything stopped, and that's that's just the natural prog- yeah, progression yeah. of that body not being able to cope. But somebody who's choked on something, you, you can reverse you that. You'd, you'd have to jump in and fix that, yeah. So so there has to, it's a bit like the news score is, you've got something that seems black and white and quite didactic, but you've got to, you've got to use the brain. And we can't forget the importance of that in nursing. You know, that we're not going to, we don't want the future of nursing to be bots, that people can only do something if the electronic health record says, no, you need to do this, no, you need to do that. We need to remind people that it's about us as nurses and and all the other uh, healthcare professionals, but this is a nursing podcast, so let's rock the nursing side of it. You know, that the importance of having a nurse who knows what they're doing at the bedside, who who thinks, who who thinks critically, who analyzes what's going on in front of them, who who does demonstrate leadership. Because I think people think leadership is all about something that you only do if you're the chief nurse and you've got a, a label on your badge. But but actually, this is about the nursing assistants up at the bedside spotting that things aren't right, whether that's just from a patient being upset and taking the time to listen to them, and then making something happen on the back of that too this patient's deteriorating and I can't get a doctor here or the doctor's told me it's all right so I'm just going to go with that and not be not follow the bit of me that's worried yeah and park it and take the easiest route because I think if any of us did that we wouldn't be here now and we wouldn't be comfortable with the great patients over there because we wouldn't be doing great stuff I say use isbard it just helps structure the conversation and gets the top points across in a way that makes sense and it's a shared mental model so we're all thinking the same way and expecting to hear it. So you know that it's coming. So I is for introduction. So hello, I am Titch from the PERT team. Situation I'm ringing about Sarah, who's a 25-year-old with AML, who appears septic. Background, I've sort of given a bit of background on AML, haven't I? But maybe my background might be she's four days post whatever sort of random chemo you've given her. And my assessment is, and then I'd run through an A, B, C, D, E mm-hmm. assessment. So the vital signs, yes, important. But if things like that people don't add in and people sometimes just get hooked on the vital signs. So breathing, her respiratory rate is 24 and she's using accessory muscles. And her saturations are, you know, we're 94, now they're 90 and we've had to go up on, you know, 15 litres. Just given a little bit more information than vital signs. Uh, and then R is recommendation, which is where S-bar finished. Yes. So recommendation was always you need to come now come you know and and that's all well and good <laughs> but like if there's one person and they've taken 15 calls on the last hour and everybody said you need to come now well that isn't realistic so the d is for decision mm-hmm. so what is the decision between the person making the call and the person receiving the call so the good thing now is having that conversation and having that information plus they benefit to see it on electronic health records hopefully at the same time is you can give some good advice and things to happen while you're waiting. I think as well, by having a discussion, if a nurse is thinking, oh my, I need to get put, I need to get put, especially if it's a junior nurse, mm-hmm. um, rather than just being, well, I'll come when I can come, it's if, can you do this, 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 and then 
you know, if it gets any worse, call me back. It means they can go off and and not worry too much and have things to do in the meantime. With your patients, and especially if it is a junior nurse, although normally you have senior support, you you talked about news of seven earlier, Gavin. I mean, your patients are news Mm -hmm. of seven pretty much all the time. Yes. So I know that's a trigger on PERT, but I think there's a little bit of seven hematology. So there are things, you, your patients will spike, their temperatures will go up, you'll give them fluids, antibiotics, uh, do all the, the bloods and make sure nothing else bad is going on, yeah. bit of paracetamol, temperature comes down and you've got this fluctuating thing. So I suppose with us on PERT, when you ring us and you're then worried, it's good for us to hear what's changed other than the new score. So to get that extra bit of information as this is why I'm worried, like we've given two and a half litres of, of fluid now over the last hour and a half and the blood pressure is still 85 and the lactate's gone from one to three. Given that bit of information makes it much easier for a PERT nurse to triage and to give advice as to what to do next. Do we call the ITU reg now? Do we pull them away from this patient? Do we take them there? Mm-hmm. Because is this one going to need to go to ITU or we need to go to start some vasopressors? Is it is it helpful when we have someone that we don't want you to see immediately? Um, what to know about? I would say particularly going into a night shift or a weekend where there hasn't been something that means that someone should be seen but I guess I wanted someone to be aware and I have done that and sometimes people have said thank you for doing that and then other times it's been like no you you just need to call us when if you wanted a review what would you advise so I would go with the second bit there because that that whole building is filled with people who might become sick so it goes back to that smoke alarm thing so we'll get a lot of calls on a Friday evening from doctors all over the trust saying, oh, just need you to know, just need you to know. When I say, right, don't tell us. Because what that's doing is giving this full sense of security. They've absolutely taken the batteries out of the smoke alarm. I get you. Because they haven't spoken to the, the ward nurse who's looking after the patient and said, this is what I'm worried about. I'm worried about this patient because X, Y, Z, this is when you need to be escalating. In addition to the new score, and especially if someone... So say someone's got a respiratory rate of 26 and then it's 50. It's still only going to score three on the news. So it's about that priming the smoke alarms and putting the batteries back into them and saying, nurse at the bedside, this is what I'm worried about. This is when you need to escalate. You're kind of a victim of your own success, really, aren't you? Because I think sometimes we do see uh, you getting referrals when it really should be the registrar maybe getting a phone, like coming back to see the patient. I think it's kind of like mm. false sense of security perks on it. Yeah, it feels like it ticks a box rather than does anything effective. And then everything's all pert know about that patient. And that's not really fair. And actually, we might know about them, but we don't know when we need to come. And then you guys think there's there's a little thought that I think that pert are psychic. And somehow just (laughs) because a patient's been on our list or is still on our list or we knew about them. You hear the sats monitor (laughs) through the tower, don't you? And it alarms. But you know, spookily, there are some times when you just, you just, I might be walking off down the stairs and I'm going somewhere and I think, oh, let me just go here. And then I go in and it's like, oh, you know, it's like it was yeah. it was it's meant like to be. Sense. Yeah, or like like there's a pert force just guiding you, <laughs> like, a, like a magnetic field that pulls you in. I don't know if other people get that. I think some people have it. We just suddenly turn up somewhere where you weren't meant to be and it's really the right thing that you're there. You're just destined to always do I think this that's pitch. you, Titch, yeah. I think that's it's you. you. Yeah, it doesn't happen to me. <laughs> <laughs> but we will feed that back. You know, oh, don't God, just yeah. don't just call Pert. Just say, I just want you to be aware, just in case anything happens, because that's, that's not helpful. No, I, I completely get what and you're saying. And we'll make so a plan on the ward instead. Yeah. 
We won't do that. Yeah, and, and specifics around the escalation, like when they really do need to, to worry and like that escalation to the registrar and calling your consultants because your consultants yep. want to know about stuff. Yep. Mm. And I'm not sure that everybody always feels comfortable. On PERT, they don't feel comfortable always ringing the consultant. And I'm not sure that junior nurses on wards do. But, no, you, but the haematology consultants are always phone us, phone us, phone us. So that could be a top tip. Yep. Yeah. Get them involved. Yeah, and, and know that know that they are they are open to ward nurses phoning them and discussing patients that they're worried about. Yeah, good. Pop. I think that's thank yeah, you so thank much. Thank you so much. What, yeah, what time great. is it? Have we just talked? Uh, <gasps> I know. I know. I know. I know. You need to be so.